Well, here we are at the Shepherds Conference, uh, a conference whose uh, theme this year is devoted to doctrinal clarity. And uh, one area in which the church is in desperate need of doctrinal clarity is on biblical sexual ethics. Uh, And particularly on the question that is the title of our seminar, is same-sex attraction sinful? Uh, There continue to be mainline churches and denominations uh, caving on the issue of homosexual practice. Uh, The United Methodist Church uh, not long ago announced the potential for a split in the denomination over whether to ordain uh, unrepentant homosexuals to the ministry. And uh, while I'm sure that there are churches who call themselves evangelical and would also call themselves affirming of homosexuality, there seems to be just enough sanity uh, within the conservative evangelical church to hold the line on the sinfulness of homosexual practice, for which we can thank God. Uh, But there is not as much clarity within our circles of semi-conservative evangelicalism on the issue of whether same-sex attraction itself is sinful. There's a growing movement afoot that believes that while homosexual practice is incompatible with faithful Christian profession, homosexual orientation is not necessarily sinful. Uh, Those who experience Sexual desires for and uh, attraction to members of the same sex, they say, do not necessarily need to put off those desires, uh, but they instead must redirect those desires into some lawful expression. The spiritual friendship movement uh, spearheaded by Wesley Hill and the, the Revoice Conference led by Nate Collins would be examples of that position. At the 2018 Revoice Conference, followers of Jesus were encouraged to embrace their identity as gay Christians, even to the point of saying that they're in a mixed orientation marriage with a member of the opposite sex. Uh, They were encouraged to do these things so long as their homosexual desires don't manifest into homosexual acts. So Wesley Hill, who I just mentioned, who was a speaker at Revoice, counsels those who experience same-sex attraction to remain celibate, but to channel the energies of their homosexual orientation into what he calls spiritual friendships. So he says, quote, my sexuality, my basic erotic orientation to the world is inescapably intertwined with how I go about finding and keeping friends. I can harness and guide my sexuality's energies in the direction of sexually abstinent yet intimate friendship. So don't set about to change your orientation. That's virtually impossible and potentially unhealthy to do. Instead, find biblically permissible ways to express that orientation. Not sexually, we can thank God again for that, but emotionally in friendships. Sam Alberry, an evangelical Anglican priest who speaks of himself as one who experiences same-sex attraction, has criticized the Revoice Conference for defining oneself by their sexual desires. And so against Hill and Collins, Alberry says that professing Christians who experience same-sex attraction should not identify themselves as gay. Christians don't define themselves by their struggles with sin, but by their union to Christ. 
This is a move in the right direction. However, up until recently, Albury has allied himself with a ministry called Living Out. It's now led by a man named Ed Shaw, uh, whose book, I notice, is in the book tent. You might skip that one if you find it. Um, but Albury uh, was recently uh, allied with a ministry organization called Living Out, uh, and, and I listen, his recent departure from living out is an encouraging sign. Uh, I don't want to impute to Sam Alberry positions of a ministry he's recently distanced himself from. Uh, but it wasn't long ago that Alberry was a member of, of this organization, also currently endorsed by Tim Keller and uh, an organization that has put on events at churches associated with the Nine Marks ministry. And I say that just to say that this is not far way out there. But living out does not believe it is inherently sinful to experience attraction to the same sex. In fact, their website claims that many same-sex attracted Christians are both happy in their sexuality and the Bible's teaching on same-sex relationships. This obviously means that they don't believe the Bible's teaching on same-sex sexual relationships rules out same-sex attraction in and of itself. Same-sex attraction, they say, should not necessarily be mortified and quote attempting to change someone's sexual orientation can actually be potentially damaging such would be to quote assume that being gay is somehow more problematic than being straight we believe that heterosexuality as we encounter it in the world is just as fallen as homosexuality and uh interestingly enough uh, living Out has on its webpage a, a promotion of another ministry whose name I forget, which is probably just as well. And, uh, and they counsel folks who struggle with same-sex desires to channel those desires in a number of ways. One of them is going to gay bars, not for engaging in any sort of sexual hookup, uh, but to just sort of be around the culture and let it, let it out in, in that sort of sense. Another recommendation on that site was to go to nude beaches. Which, can we all just agree that that's just never good advice? (laughs) No matter what you're feeling, just don't do that. So you see the camps that that take shape. There is the out-and-out liberal view that recognizes that Scripture prohibits homosexuality, but that Scripture should just be rejected. Luke Timothy Johnson is an example of that famous quote from, I think, way back in, I don't know if it was 2005 or maybe 2010, where he just says, yeah, Scripture you know, outlaws homosexuality. We reject that. We live by our experience. I mean, literally says that there's the revisionist view that attempts to make a biblical case for the compatibility of homosexual practice and Christianity. This would be the Matthew vines, the James Brownson argument. And so we sort of recognize that both of those views are out there. You know, conservative evangelicalism is not imminently tempted to embrace one of those clearly unbiblical options. But then, contrary to the traditional Christian position that would identify both homosexual acts and homosexual desires as sins to be repented of, there's a camp that accepts Scripture's condemnation of same-sex behavior, but denies that such a condemnation extends to same-sex attraction. And this position, as I said, isn't just held by people who are out there. Um, Hill, Wesley Hill, is a graduate of Wheaton College. Nate Collins is a graduate of the PhD program at Southern Seminary. 
Uh, one advocate of the neutrality of same-sex attraction is an elder at uh, Bethlehem Baptist Church, formerly Piper's Church, and a contributor to the blog at Desiring God. So this is an in-house issue for us. And I'd be willing to bet that if we polled the room, we'd find more disagreement among us than we'd like to expect. I believe that this question, the sinfulness or the permissibility of same-sex attraction, is the watershed issue for conservative evangelical conviction on sexuality. We get that the Bible unmistakably condemns homosexual practice. We get that it's unwise and contrary to our regeneration in Christ to define ourselves by our sinful inclinations. And so we reject the terminology of gay Christian and the like. But evangelicalism seems to be splitting, or at least confused, over whether sexual attraction to members of the same sex is sinful in itself, or same-sex attraction is neutral until it's acted upon. And this seminar aims to answer that question, is same-sex attraction sinful? And the way that evangelicalism answers this question is going to have far-reaching effects, not only on our doctrine of sanctification in general but also on our ability to uphold a biblical, a consistent biblical sexual ethic in the face of so many hostile opponents in the culture. So it's my conviction that same-sex attraction is indeed sin that must be repented of, that we have a pastoral responsibility to labor with those who struggle with such desires to mortify and to forsake them, And that legitimizing same-sex attraction in any sense would be the breach in the dam that will lead to full-scale compromise on biblical sexuality. You compromise here, give yourself five years, and you'll be further down the road than you would have ever cared to imagine. I hope in the remainder of the seminar to make that case from Scripture. Now, what ultimately drives us to have this discussion is our desire to glorify God in Christ by being faithful to his word and to see his holy standard for human sexual ethics as creatures created in his image to be upheld in the midst of virulent attacks from the culture. The glory of God and the lordship of Christ has to be our ultimate concern. But we're also driven to have this discussion out of sincere pastoral concern for those who struggle with same-sex attraction. See, part of the disagreement between faithful Christians on the sinfulness of same-sex attraction comes from a proper, compassionate desire to not place an undue burden on genuine followers of Christ who, out of obedience to Christ, discipline themselves not to engage in any sexual behavior because they're inclined toward homosexual behavior, and yet who nevertheless experience enduring emotional and sexual attraction to members of the same sex. And so in their immensely helpful book, which I commend to you, Transforming Homosexuality, Denny Burke and Heath Lambert articulate this concern really quite well. They say, these dear brothers and sisters struggle faithfully and practice chastity, but they sense that they cannot eliminate same-sex attractions that well up within them spontaneously and uninvited. So it seems cruel and unusual to call their unchosen and unwanted attractions sinful. To call their attractions sinful while they're otherwise living a life of faithfulness and chastity seems to load these brothers and sisters up with burdens too heavy for them to bear. Then no one wants to sin against them and fall under the censure that Jesus laid against the scribes and Pharisees. I think that's absolutely right. But if same-sex attraction is sinful, 
If it's not merely homosexual behavior that's prohibited in Scripture, but also the desires and the inclinations of the heart that lead to those behaviors, then making that case to our brothers and sisters struggling with same-sex attraction is not placing an undue burden on them. It's making God's will known to them and bringing the standard of holiness that is laid out for them in Scripture to bear on their lives, which is exactly what I need my brothers and sisters in Christ to do for me as well as we make progress together in sanctification. If I'm convinced that some sin that I'm committing isn't in fact a sin, I'm not likely to focus very much on repenting from that sin. I mean, why repent of something if it's not sinful? But if it is sinful and I'm just convinced that it's not, I'm going to continue in my unrepentant sin and cut myself off from the fellowship and communion with Christ that is enjoyed on the path of obedience, but which is hindered and obscured when sin is harbored and not confessed. So by identifying sin as what it is, we aim not to place undue burdens on people, but to give people hope that they don't have to be enslaved to their sinful desires all their lives, but that they can find freedom and wholeness in Christ through the gospel and in his resurrection power that he gives us to walk in newness of life. Now, another somewhat preliminary remark is to make sure that we know precisely what we mean when we speak of same-sex attraction. Someone who is same-sex attracted is someone who has enduring experiences of emotional, romantic, and or sexual desires for members of the same sex. Enduring experiences of emotional, romantic, and or sexual desires for members of the same sex. Uh, Those who have defended the neutrality of same-sex attraction have often argued for a distinction between attraction and desire. And so Matthew Anderson was a speaker at the Revoice Conference, and he puts it this way, quote, one thing which remains after the purification of same-sex sexual desires is the complex set of noticings and attractions toward members of one's own sex. So even though, according to Anderson, same-sex desires are purified, same-sex noticings and attractions remain. Now, because the Revoice Conference was held at a PCA church, the Central Carolina Presbytery of the PCA formed a committee to investigate the conference and report any relevant findings. Kevin DeYoung was a member of that committee, that is his presbytery. And in response to Anderson's point about desire, noticings, and attractions, the committee wrote this following helpful assessment, which you can get, Central Carolina Presbytery Revoice Report. They said this, While noticing is not the same as desire, it's hard to imagine how attraction does not carry some sense of magnetic pull, arousal, or desire. By a simple dictionary definition, to notice is to observe or perceive, while attraction suggests interest and allurement. A mother may recognize that her her teenage son is quite handsome, or that her daughter has grown into an objectively beautiful woman. These noticings can take place apart from any sexual longing. But if a mother were to experience any attraction to her son or daughter, surely we would describe this kind of noticing as illicit, as a perverse response, however unbidden, that should be mortified at all costs. 
In short, while we distinguish between noticing and attraction, we do not see how attraction and desire are fundamentally different moral categories. And I think that's spot on. To be attracted to someone is to desire that person in some way. To be same-sex attracted is to experience enduring emotional, romantic, and or sexual desires for members of the same sex. And those desires, even if they arise in us somewhat unconsciously and unwanted, are nevertheless sinful and must be mortified and repented of. But why, you ask? Why is it that it's not enough to abstain from homosexual behavior? Why are homosexual desires or attractions sinful? And why must we counsel those who struggle with such desires and attractions to repent of them? Well, the first reason is because of the fundamentally internal nature of sin and holiness. The fundamentally internal nature of sin and holiness. Sin and holiness are matters of the heart, and they cannot be reduced merely to external actions. Genuine, God-honoring, Christ-like, spirit-driven holiness is a matter of the thoughts, affections, and desires, as well as the actions. See, God does not merely command us to behave righteously, though he does that, he commands us to be holy. And we need to be overwhelmed with this truth that the believer's growth in holiness is a fundamentally internal matter. The emphasis on the heart throughout the entirety of the scriptures speaks to our need to forsake sin and pursue holiness at the level of the heart and not merely at the hands. So, Write down some of these references. Matthew 5, 8, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's not enough, Matthew 23, to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside to be full of robbery and self-indulgence. It's not enough to be whitewashed tombs, but inside to be full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. What's Jesus say? First, clean the inside of the cup and the dish so that the outside of it might become clean also. In Matthew 18, 35, the close of the parable of the unforgiving slave, Jesus tells us that the father is not satisfied with hypocritical forgiveness. He says that the the father will cast us into hell to be tortured, quote, if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. The greatest commandment in the law, Matthew 22, 37, is that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind. In Acts 8.22, when Simon asks to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit with money, Peter rebukes him and tells him, therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. See, Simon didn't need forgiveness merely for his attempted bribery. He needed forgiveness even for the intention of his heart. And so when the gospel releases us from our slavery to sin, how does Paul speak of redeemed believers? Romans 6, 17, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. The slave of sin who has been made a slave of righteousness is one who becomes obedient from the heart internally, obedient, not just outwardly, but from the heart. In Ephesians 6, 5, and 6, Paul commands the slave to be obedient to their masters in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, 
but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. And then that classic text on sanctification, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, says that God is working in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so in progressive sanctification, God works in us not just to work, but also to will. He's working even on our wants, on our desires. And so the desires of the flesh, the desires that characterized our old life of sin, they themselves are to be the object of our mortification. And the New Testament testifies to that just as well. Galatians 5.24 says, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The passions and the desires of the flesh must be crucified. Titus 2, 11 and 12, the grace of God instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. 1 Peter 2, 11, beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, fleshly desires, which wage war against the soul. And Colossians 3, 5 says that we are to put to death what is earthly in us, not merely the external actions of sexual immorality and impurity, which it mentions, but then also what it goes on to mention, the internal affections of passion, evil desire, and covetousness. And so, friends, holiness is not merely a matter of bringing our outward behavior into conformity to an external standard. Holiness does require holy behavior, but that's not all it requires. So the great Princeton theologian Charles Hodge puts it very helpfully. He says, sanctification does not consist exclusively in a series of a new kind of acts. It is making the tree good in order that the fruit may be good. It involves an essential change of character. Just as regeneration is a new birth, a new creation, a quickening or communicating a new life, so sanctification in its essential nature is not holy acts, but such a change in the state of the soul that sinful acts become more infrequent and holy acts more and more habitual and controlling. Sanctification is not merely new acts, but an essential change of the soul of man. God is at work in us both to will and to work. And so the sanctification that we must press after and lead our people to press after is both internal and external. We must have sanctified affections as well as sanctified actions because God has not simply commanded us to carry out a series of external duties. He has also commanded us to have a particular frame of heart as we do those external duties. You can call them internal duties if you like. And so Micah 6.8 commands us not merely to do justly, but to what? Love mercy. 1 Peter 5, 2, pastors and elders are commanded not merely to shepherd the flock of God, but to shepherd the flock of God willingly and eagerly, not under compulsion. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, that God loves a cheerful giver. So if God loves a cheerful giver and you, you faithfully put that envelope in the plate every week, but you do it begrudgingly without cheerfulness, have you obeyed? Well, you've obeyed the command to give, but you haven't obeyed the command to give cheerfully. So you see, God commands our affections as well as our actions. 
which means that the holy person, the truly holy person, doesn't merely do what God commands, though of course he does that. It goes deeper than that. The holy person loves what God loves. He desires what God desires. He is attracted to what God is attracted to. And then he acts in keeping with that renewed heart. Now, to suggest that homosexual desires or same-sex attraction is not itself a sin to be mortified, but that one faithfully follows Christ in holiness so long as he doesn't act on those desires, is entirely out of accord with everything that I've just said to you. All those passages we just read, that's not making the tree good, like Hodge says. That's chopping off the rotten fruit. It's, it's allowing, and in some sense, even encouraging sin to draw life from the soil of wickedness. But we're not to battle sin merely at the level of its fruit. We are to lay the axe at the root of the tree. We're to cut sin out at the root level of the desires of our heart. So what does Jesus say in Mark 7, 21? For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, and so on. Sinful acts are rooted in the sinful heart, in the affections, in the desires. And so it's the desires that produce the behaviors. That's the Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? Matthew 5, 27, Jesus quotes directly from the Septuagint's translation of the seventh commandment in Exodus 20, 14. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. There is a comment about sexually immoral behavior. But then in verse 28 of Matthew 5, Jesus immediately follows his quotation of the seventh commandment with a citation of the 10th commandment. He says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her, literally to desire her, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And the term translated lust is epithumeo from the Greek translation of Exodus 20, 17, you shall not covet, epithumeo. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. So Jesus is inextricably linking the pre-behavioral sexual desire for a woman with the act of adultery. God's law doesn't merely prohibit the acts of adultery and stealing. It prohibits the covetous and lustful desires that leads to those acts. And friends, the extent to which we disconnect same-sex attraction from same-sex behavior by suggesting that the latter is prohibited but the former is permissible is the same extent to which we will turn biblical sanctification into mere behavior modification. The extent to which we disconnect same-sex attraction from same-sex behavior is the same extent to which we will turn biblical sanctification into behavior modification. It is the extent to which we wholly externalize the concepts of sin and holiness. And yet scripture tells us that sin is not merely what we do. It's not even merely what we feel. Brothers, it's, it's who we are. Sin is not merely our transgression of external laws. It is the condition of our souls. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. And the fact that our sinful desires seem to spring from within us so naturally, the fact that we seem naturally oriented to be attracted to a particular set of sinful behaviors only increases our culpability. It certainly doesn't absolve us from it. It only testifies further to our corruption, right? I'm inclined this way. That feels natural. This is who I am. 
Yes, exactly. When I'm tempted, the fact that I find temptations so enticing and attractive only means my sin problem is worse than I thought. It reaches deeper than my hands into my heart, into the very core of my being. And so because our sinful acts are rooted in and spring out from our sinful hearts, biblical sanctification requires more than repentance at the level of our behavior, but at the level of the desires and the inclinations and the attractions that produce those behaviors. And so John Murray, longtime professor of theology at Westminster Seminary said, the outward act of transgression is determined by inclination, propension, character. The character that produces the act cannot be different as to its moral character from the act itself. In other words, it is sin to be attracted to what is sinful. The desire for an illicit end is itself an illicit desire. It's an indication that whatever my actions may be, my affections are still sinful. I still want something which my father has told me is not for me to have. I may know it's wrong to act on that desire, and by God's grace, I may restrain myself from acting upon it. It's better to be angry than to murder. It's better to be lustful than to commit adultery. But I still want something. I'm still attracted to something which does not give me more of my father, which does not lead me to enjoy more of his glory, and therefore which cannot satisfy the longings of my soul, but can only deceive, Ephesians 4.22, can only corrupt, 2 Peter 2.10, and can only plunge men into ruin and destruction, 1 Timothy 6.9. Even to desire those things, to seek satisfaction in things which are not my God nor from my God is evil desire. It is idolatry and it must be repented of. Now, I don't have time for this next point, but those of you interested in this issue should read all you can on the historical debate between the Roman Catholic and Reformed doctrine of concupiscence. Concupiscence, C-O-N-C-U-P-I-S-C-E-N-C-E. Concupiscence speaks of involuntary desires that have been disordered by sin. I mean, pretty spot on, right? They've been talking about this since the Reformation. And interestingly, Roman Catholic theology holds that concupiscence is not sinful, while Reformed theology has always held that it is sinful. Uh, For those of you inclined, you can read Bavinck, Volume 3, uh, starting around page 140. Calvin in in the Institutes, books 2 and 3, have some sprinklings about concupiscence, especially uh, book 3, chapter 3. And like I said, I don't have time for it, and so I'm just going to read a summary paragraph of the historical debate um, from the Central Carolina Presbytery's report on the Revoice Conference, which I mentioned before. They write this, how we describe our involuntary disordered desires is a major difference between a Roman Catholic understanding of sin and a Reformed understanding of sin. According to the Catholic Catechism, the, quote, inclination to sin that tradition calls concupiscence is left for us to wrestle with, but it cannot harm those who do not consent. Elsewhere, the Catechism of the Catholic Church explains that, quote, concupiscence stems from the disobedience of the first sin. It unsettles man's moral faculties and without being itself an offense, inclines man to commit sins. 
end quote. So back now to the, the, the Presbyterian's report. In other words, they say, disordered desire, though a result of the fall, does not become sin apart from a consenting act of the will. The Reformed tradition has uniformly disagreed with this understanding of concupiscence. The Reformation, writes Bavink, spoke out against that position, asserting that also the impure thoughts and desires that arose in us prior to and apart from our will are sin. Calvin explicitly teaches that these, quote, inordinate desires, the Latin concupiscentius, which is obviously he's talking about that, concupiscence, these inordinate desires should be called not merely weakness, but sin. Calvin says, we label sin that very depravity which begets in us desires of this sort. We accordingly teach that in the saints, until they are divested of mortal bodies, there is always sin. For in their flesh, there resides the depravity of inordinate desiring, which contends against righteousness. Now, history is not a hermeneutic. Truth is not established by whether our heroes taught it or whether heretics taught against it. But nevertheless, I do find it interesting that historically speaking, proponents of the neutrality of same-sex attraction are basically practicing a fundamentally Romanist homardiology and an anti-reformed homardiology, explicitly in opposition to the reformers who many of them would regard as their own theological forebears. I wish I could talk more about concupiscence, but we must press forward. Now, as I discuss the the nature of temptation and the sinfulness of same-sex attraction, the principal objection that I receive is simply experiencing temptation cannot itself be sinful because Hebrews 4.15, the Lord Jesus was tempted in all ways like we are and yet was without sin. So to be attracted to sin, they say, is precisely what it means to be tempted to sin. By saying same-sex attraction is itself sinful, aren't you saying, Mike, that people sin simply by virtue of being tempted? And in that case, do you not undermine the sinlessness of Christ who was tempted? It's an important objection, and it must be answered. In fact, I think a proper understanding of sin and temptation is the crux of this debate. You should hear Sin and Temptation and automatically hear a reference to John Owen, Volume 6, which I highly recommend. John Owen, Volume 6, Mortification of Sin on the Nature of Indwelling Sin and Believers and the Nature of Sin and Temptation. Go get that, Master Volume 6, and you, you will love life. Um, it is, it is or you'll, you'll hate yourself and love life at the same time. Uh, it, is, it, is, it is amazing. Um, but this objection conflates two times of t- two kinds I should say of temptation or at least two ways the scriptures speak about temptation namely what we might call external temptation and internal temptation external temptation is a temptation that is experienced entirely from without it is an external solicitation to sin External temptation is what Jesus experienced in Matthew 4 and Luke 4 when Satan tempted him to turn stones into bread, to fall down and worship Satan, and to, and to throw himself from the cliff to prove that he was the Son of God. And it was not sin for Jesus to be tempted in this way, to be the object of Satan's temptations. So, for example, if someone comes up to me and says, Mike, look at this girl over here. She's barely got anything on, right? That person external to me is tempting me to sin. But if such an external temptation finds no place in my affections, 
right? If there are no hooks in my heart that dispose me to yield to that temptation in that instance, if by God's grace, I was so satisfied in Christ and in the communion with him that I enjoy on the path of obedience and that the path of disobedience looks utterly repulsive to me and has no pull on my affections. And my, if my delight in the glory of the Lord was such that that kind of temptation is lost on me, I have not sinned, right? It's not, a t- a tempta- it's not my position that all temptation is sinful. To be tempted externally is not in its of itself sinful. And so somebody comes up to you and says, hey, let's, you know, after Shepherd's Conference, we're going to go, you know, get smashed at whatever local bar, right? You're going to look at them and say, dude, what are you, nuts? Like, you know, this is, like, we don't do this. Like, I, my, my heart has no pull toward drunkenness, right? That's the response you want to temptation. And in that moment, you, you, it can be properly said that you were tempted to, to drunkenness, but you weren't internally tempted. There was nothing rising within you that said, oh yeah, I'd like that, but no, 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 I better not. No, but I'd like it right? It was merely external. But to be tempted internally is what James talks about in James 1.14 when he says, but each one, or James, yeah, 1.14, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust or his own desire. Internal temptation is a temptation that, re, that re, arises from within my own sinful heart and is owing to the fact that my affections and desires and inclinations and attractions are still sinful. I still want what my father has told me is not for me to have, which, as we said before, does not lead me to enjoy his glory in greater measure and which therefore cannot satisfy my soul. So for me to desire those things, for me to find alluring and attractive and satisfying those things which exchange the truth of God for a lie is to commit idolatry. And so in this same scenario where somebody comes and urges me to look at an immodestly dressed woman, if there were hooks in my heart, if the external temptation combined with my own evil desire to gratify the lust of my eyes even if I didn't actually turn around and ogle that woman, I have still sinned in my heart. I have still desired that for which there is no lawful expression. That which the Lord has told me is not mine to have. And I need to repent of that desire and aim to mortify it in such a way that if I were presented with that kind of external temptation again, my heart would be in in such a frame as to have no hooks for it. And so the reason that it wasn't sin for Jesus to be tempted in the wilderness is not merely because he never performed the acts that Satan urged him to perform. It was because Christ never even desired to perform them. In other words, Satan's external temptation never passed into internal temptation in Jesus' heart. Jesus said, in, 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 uh, well, because Jesus was sinless, because he had no sin nature, right? Because as he himself said in John 14, 30, the ruler of this world has nothing in me. There was nothing in his sinless nature that could have produced even a desire for evil. And that means that whatever temptations Jesus faced were external temptations, If there were any hooks in Jesus' heart onto which sin could latch, if if in the wilderness he thought, oh, I would so love to demonstrate my power and glory as the eternal son apart from my father's plan, he would have desired what his father said was not for him to have, and he would have become a transgressor. 
he would not have loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not all his heart. In our case, Galatians 5.17, the spirit sets his desire against the flesh, right? There is a war being waged within our members, Romans 7.23. But with Jesus, who came in the likeness of sinful flesh, Romans 8.3, but who had no genuinely sinful flesh, there was no internal war. He not only performed righteousness, he loved and desired righteousness at every moment, He never desired to do anything but the will of his father. John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 5, 19, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these the son does also in like manner. Christ was holy in his affections as well as his actions. To not be so would have undermined his sinlessness. And so Owen says, there is something in our temptations more than was in the temptation of Christ. There is something in ourselves to take part with every temptation. And there is enough in ourselves to tempt us, though nothing else should appear against us. With Christ, it was not so. John 14, 30, the ruler of this world has nothing in me. And so Jesus was tempted externally like we are, yet without sin and so not internally. Owen goes on to explain this distinction between internal and external temptation very well in The Nature and Power of Indwelling Sin. Like I said, Owen, volume six, go get it. Owen says, now what is it to be tempted? It is to have that proposed to a man's consideration. If he close with all is evil, it is sin unto him. This is sin's trade, epithume, it lusteth. It lusteth. It is raising up in the heart and proposing unto the mind and affections that which is evil, trying, as it were, whether the soul will close with its suggestions or how far it will carry them on, though it do not wholly prevail. Now, here's the key. Now, Owen says, when such a temptation comes from without, it is unto the soul an indifferent thing, neither good nor evil, unless it be consented unto. But the very proposal from within it being the soul's own act, is its sin. The very proposal of temptation from within the heart of man is the soul's own act. And therefore, it is the soul's sin. The temptation of same-sex attraction is an internal temptation. It is to be carried away and enticed by one's own desire. And therefore, it is sin. Now, somebody's going to say, you quoted James 1 a couple of times, but, but doesn't the progression of thought in James 1, 13 to 15, distinguish sin from desire, right? James says that each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust or desire. And then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. You're saying the desire is sin, but James says the desire leads to sin. That's another good objection and one that needs to be answered. And the answer comes in the New Testament usage of the term hamartia, the word for sin, which it uses in at least two distinct senses. Some texts speak of sin as a reference to particular sinful deeds or behaviors. The prodigal son comes home and he says, Father, I have sinned. In other texts, 
Sin refers to that principle or condition of sin or inclination to sin that resides in the heart. That's the law of sin in the members of my body, which wages war against the law of my mind in Romans 7.23. So the term can be used in both ways. And interestingly, of the seven times that James uses the word hamartia in his letter, every other occurrence is a clear reference to sinful deeds. James 2, 9, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin. James 5, 16, confess your sins to one another, and so on. So given James's use of the word in the rest of the letter, coupled with the New Testament's teaching on the fundamentally internal nature of sin and holiness that we saw earlier, I believe we're constrained to interpret sin in James 1, 15 to refer to the commission of sinful acts. James, in that particular verse, is speaking of sin as the actual external act of committing it. But he does not mean to restrict sinfulness to the external and not to the internal. Calvin agrees with me, always a good thing. In his his commentary on this passage, he explicitly distinguishes his view from the Roman Catholic doctrine of concupiscence. So it's interesting, as Calvin comments on James 1, he's specifically interacting with the Romanist doctrine of concupiscence, which he recognizes to be a battleground on the basis of James 1. And so he says this, it seems, however, improper and not according to the usage of scripture to to restrict the word sin to outward works as though indeed lust itself were not a sin, and as though corrupt desires remaining closed up within and suppressed were not so many sins. But as the use of a word is various, there's nothing unreasonable if it be taken here, as in many other places, for actual sin, that is, again, the commission of external acts. And the papists ignorantly lay hold on this passage and seek to prove from it that vicious, yea, filthy, wicked, and the most abominable lusts are not sins, provided there is no assent. For James doesn't show when sin begins to be born so as to be sin and so accounted by God, but as when it breaks forth. See what Calvin's saying? James is not telling us when sin begins. He's telling us when sin breaks forth. And so the Central Carolina Presbytery gives helpful comments on that passage in Calvin. And they say this, for Calvin, there is indwelling sin, the temptations caused by desire in in James 1.14b, There is actual sin, which is the birth of sin in verse 15a, and perfected sin, the deadly, fully grown sin in verse 15b. When James talks about temptations leading to sin, he doesn't mean that the temptation in this case is morally neutral. The one who's experiencing temptation caused by his own desire is already experiencing the reality of indwelling sin, though that indwelling sin in the Christian can be resisted so as not to give birth to actual, that is, acted upon, sin. The process outlined in James 1.14 and 15, they say, is not one that moves from innocence to sin, but rather one that sees indwelling sin move from the mind to the affections to the will and finally to the outward working of sin in the life and death of a person. I know that's a lot. Listen to the recording and review that, that paragraph well because it's, it's really well said. It's not moving from innocence to sin in the progression of James 1, but the progression is moving from sin in the mind, sin in the affections, sin in the will, to the outworking of sin in the life and death of a person. Give me, give me three more minutes, or five, or maybe. So James is simply saying that sinful desire gives birth to sinful acts. But it just does not follow that the desire he speaks about is morally neutral. Look at it. He says it lures and entices the sinner away from faithfulness and into disobedience, which is why the NAS translates epithumia as lust here. 
Because it's plain from the context that there is a sinful character to this desire. And so this objection from James 1, while initially plausible, turns out not only to, have, to fail to establish the neutrality of desire, but upon closer examination actually establishes the sinfulness of desire. That is what covetousness is. It is a desire for anything that you cannot righteously have. A desire that has no lawful expression. Sexual attraction to members of the same sex fits that very definition precisely. And some people will say, look, it's not a sin for a man to find a woman attractive so long as it doesn't pass into lustful desire. Why can't it be the same for a man finding men attractive? Well, again, as we said at the beginning, same-sex attraction goes beyond noticing that someone is objectively good-looking. But the answer is heterosexual desire and homosexual desire are different things. The morality of a desire is determined by its object. And it's, it's not a matter of intensity. Oh, I like it, but only a little bit. Or, or a matter of chosenness. I can tell I want it, but I really don't want to want it. It's a matter of the thing desired. The object of heterosexual desire may be lawfully expressed within the covenant of marriage. The object of homosexual desire cannot be lawfully expressed. And the desire for which there is no lawful expression is the definition of covetousness. It is the very evil desire which Colossians 3.5 commands us to regard as dead to us. And which verse 6 of Colossians 3 says brings about the wrath of God on unbelievers. Now, I want you to hear me because, because I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm not saying that anybody who struggles with same-sex attraction is excluded from salvation. I'm not saying that they must not be a Christian. I'm not saying that they, they must even begin to pursue experiencing opposite-sex sexual desires. But they must be exhorted to put off their sinful affections. Just like someone who finds themselves particularly susceptible to the temptation of indulging desires for fornication or adultery or drunkenness or acts of violence. Phil Johnson tells a story of a call he got at Grace to You back in 1983, a couple years after he had come. A guy who was arguing this very point, you know, is it sin when I just desire it or is it sin when I actually act upon it? And he was arguing for the latter, that it's only sin when you act upon it. And then eventually he says to Phil, as long as I can remember, I have a, a sexual attraction to, quote, large farm animals. Kid you not. True story. So are we going to tell that guy, look, it's okay just, you know, you, you don't have to worry about mortifying those, uh, that attraction to large farm animals. It's just who you are, but just don't act on it. No, we're not going to tell that guy that. We're not going to tell somebody who feels particularly inclined to acts of violence that violence-attracted Christians should go to conferences where they learn to be happy with their orientation, as well as Scripture's teaching on anger and violence. No, we tell them to confess those inclinations and attractions as sinful, to put them to death by the power of the Spirit, and to walk in accordance with the gospel by which they have been saved, at least profess to be saved. See, in, instead of giving the hope of freedom from bondage to believers who struggle with same-sex attraction, the perspective endorsed by Collins and Revoice and Living Out, it just defines the problem away. But we have, brothers, we have so much better news than you're stuck. You know, you're going to have to learn to manage this. No, we have a gospel of sovereign grace that brings genuine reorienting freedom in Christ through his gospel. 
We, we have, we, we, we are, yes, we have to, we are constrained to, by scripture to confess that same-sex attraction is itself sinful. But we're constrained by the very same scriptures that Christ Jesus has come into the world to save sinners. And not only to justify sinners on the basis of his own perfect obedience, but also to sanctify them by the exertion of the same power that raised him from the dead. Resurrection power is at work for the sanctification of those who trust in Christ. And so while it would be unwise to promise or to expect immediate change, or that one day that Jesus is just going to zap sanctify you from any trace of struggle with same-sex desires or, or any other sinful desires, right? Nevertheless, we can have great hope. We ought not regard sexual orientation, quote unquote, as immutable. We ought to regard it as an area of our lives over which Christ, our King, exerts his lordship. And we should trust him to be able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think through the means of grace which he has appointed for our sanctification. And one last word, we ought to worship Jesus our great captain of salvation, our champion of perfect righteousness, who never sinned by having sinful sexual desires, heterosexual or homosexual. I mean, think of it. A man like us, tempted as we are, yet without sin, without sin in hand, without sin in heart, perfectly pure. Your Lord walked as a man on this earth, and he never took advantage of anyone with a lustful glance. He never viewed others as an occasion for his own gratification. He always interacted with his neighbors in, a perf- in perfect purity. He always lived for their benefit and never once sought to use anyone for his own illicit gain. What a man. What a savior that we have. And the cry of our heart ought to be, whether we struggle with same-sex attraction or attraction to other sinful desires, our, our, our heart's desire ought to be, the cry of our heart ought to be, I want to be a man like him. I want to so serve people that it doesn't even enter into my mind to use someone to my own gratification. I want to live in perfect purity as, as my savior did, as the God man did. And praise God that where I have failed, he has succeeded. Where you have sinned, friend, he has obeyed. And he freely credits that lived out real life, perfect life of obedience to, to me, to you, and to all who come to him in repentant faith. And the contemplation of that glory of Jesus by faith is what transforms us into the same image from glory to glory, from the inside out. And so may we look to him and point others to look to him, no matter what the sin struggle, so that Christ may get what he is worthy of until all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would accomplish your work in your people, seal your word to every heart, Uh, Do your work, get your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.